know, it's exciting to be here with you on a Sabbath as we look forward to the fall holy days and the feast. It's especially exciting because we have a perspective that's built around the Sabbath and the holy days, which is really very different from the peoples of the world. You know, we live in a world where there are many different religions. Some of them go back thousands of years. They have very different teachings, very different practices. Today we live in a world that many people have many different ideas about religion. Some are believers, some are doubters, and a growing number of people are basically turned off on religion. They don't want to have anything to do with it because of what they have seen. You know, the result of this religious confusion, there are many sincere people that want to know what the truth is. There are many sincere people that want to know what's right and what's wrong, and they try and figure it out on their own, and they get confused. And yet, if God is calling you, it's going to be possible to kind of get through all the confusion and find out what the truth is. It's encouraging when I've had visits with some people that say, look, I've looked at all the programs on television, all the different churches, and you guys have it. You guys have it. And that's exciting. I think sometimes they realize they, they think they figured it all out by themselves, but they didn't. You know, God guides people to the truth. God guides people to the truth. And if God is calling you, it is possible to find that truth and be confident about that truth. You know, Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, he said, you shall know the truth. And he's speaking to his disciples. He said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'd like to ask a couple more questions. Do you know what you believe? Do you really know what you believe? And why you believe it? Do you know what you believe and do you know why you believe it? And are your beliefs based on truth or based on opinions or feelings? Are they based on a truth or are they based on uh, the feeling on feelings? And opinions. You know, in the sermon today, I want to talk about one of the most unique teachings of the Living Church of God, one of the most unique teachings of other churches of God that have our that share our our, our history and our heritage. I want to talk about the Sabbath and the biblical holy days. The Sabbath and the biblical holy days. You know, as we go off to the feast this year, I'd like you to think about something. As you go to the feast, there will probably be 30,000, 40,000 people around the world that are keeping the feast, maybe more than that. For the sake of numbers, let's say 70,000 people. And there are about, what, 7 billion people in the world. That works out to be, and if my math is wrong, it'll still make the point. (laughs) 
about one person for every 100,000 people. You're the one person for every one person, about 100,000 people that are not keeping the feast. They don't keep it. They don't understand it. That's an incredibly small number of people. But it fits with what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, where he says, Not many wise, not many mighty are called. But God has called or has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, or he's chosen the things that the world feels are foolish, such as keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days. And God is doing that basically to confound the wise. You we're not the wise, we're not the mighty, but the world has many prominent people that don't understand what you and I have been given to understand. Let's ask just a couple more questions. Why do we keep the biblical holy days? Why do we actually keep the biblical holy days? Do we keep it because just everybody else is? But why do we keep it? Why do we keep the holy days different than the Jews? And I've run into this over the years. I think probably a number of you have. Somebody will ask, well, you know, the Jews don't do it the way we do, but they've got the same book that we do. They have half of the book that we do. They don't have the other half. They don't have the New Testament. But why do we keep it differently? Why don't mainstream professing Christians observe the biblical holy days because they believe that they're following Jesus. They believe that they're using the Bible, but they don't do the same things that we do. Did Jesus do away with the holy days? Should New Testament Christians keep the holy days? What I'd like to focus on as we go through the sermon today is what does the New Testament reveal about the holy days that is not in the Old Testament? What does the New Testament reveal about the holy days that is not in the Old Testament? That's basically what I want to focus on today. I've entitled the sermon, The Biblical Holy Days and the New Testament. The Biblical Holy Days and the New Testament. And I would encourage you as we go through the sermons, not just today, but as we go to the feast, to take notes and to keep them in a notebook. I know the churches I attended when I was growing up, nobody ever took notes. Uh, There was a number of farmers in the congregation that I attended, and they all went to sleep during services because it was very peaceful, 15 minutes, and they could catch up on the sleep that they missed during the week. But two reasons for taking notes. Number one, as we read in First Peter 3.15, where he says we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We need to be able to defend what we believe, explain what we believe, first to ourselves, and then to anyone that might ask. That's one reason. Another reason that we've been called to become teachers in the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah 20 verses, Isaiah 30 verses 20 and 21. If we hope to teach, we need to prepare to teach. You know, you can't teach with conviction what you really don't believe or you've never proven to yourself. 
I remember one of the guys that I roomed with at Ambassador College years ago. We both wound up in the faculty. He wound up out in the field, and I did too later on. And whenever all the changes started to happen, some of his people came up and said, how can you preach what you once proved was not true? He said, well, 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 I never proved everything. I never proved everything. So he was changing. He was changing. So prepare to teach. Another question, why would we talk about the holy days? We're getting ready for the holy days. They're coming, and we've had several sermons about the holy days. Why have another one? Why have another one? Why talk about something that we all believe? One of the reasons is we're told to talk about these things, and we're warned what will happen if we don't. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to give a number, or refer to anyways, a number of scriptures. And I would encourage you, write them down, jot them down in your notes. But I'm not going to expound on all of them, because most of them are pretty self-evident. But jot the, the scriptures down under the titles that we talk about. This first title we're going to talk about is Warnings in the New Testament. Warnings in the New Testament. And we're going to just run through First and Second Timothy very quickly, a couple of verses here that you know, Paul hits about six, eight, ten verses that talk about what we need to be careful about. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He's writing to Timothy, a young evangelist, giving him advice on how to deal with issues that come up in congregations. He said, I urge you, verse 3, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You tell people, you can't be teaching other doctrines in the congregation, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification. Skip over to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul hits this same topic. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And then he lists several different doctrines that were being spread around at that time. You might jot in your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul warns that there are some people will come along preaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, being led by a different spirit. And Paul calls those people a little bit later in the chapter Satan's ministers. Now, they didn't have a pin on their lapel that says, I'm Satan's minister. (laughs) They were caught up promoting ideas that they thought was right, but they were actually playing into a very divisive approach. Chapter 4, verse 13. Again, just notice what Paul keeps coming back to. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, talking about reading the scriptures, to exhortation, encouraging people, and to doctrine. He said, you can't ignore the subject of doctrine. You know, as the church came apart back in 1995, I was teaching down at Big Sandy. I'd been there for about three years. And in the three years leading up to everything that happened in 1995, I don't recall hearing a sermon on doctrine. 
I heard about people's trips that they took and talking to people on airplanes and talking to people in elevators and uh, sermons about the English department and the history department and the math department and so on. But doctrine was not addressed for the most part. And then when things began to change, people were not prepared because they hadn't heard sermons on doctrine. I'm going to give some examples of that. Now, we talk about the church breaking up back in 1995. just want to do a little survey. How many of you were not born yet in 1995? Wait a minute. (laughs) How many were not born in 1995, and how many of you have come into the church since 1995? Let's see your hands. All right, maybe about a third. But for some of you, when we talk about this, this is ancient history. This happened before your life began. You know, one of my boys used to kid whenever we were, when he was growing up. He said, Dad, what was it like to live in a civil war? (laughs) He was kidding, I think. (laughs) I think. (laughs) At least I'll give him that benefit of the doubt. (laughs) You know, if something happened before our time, it really doesn't affect us that much. And yet the Bible is filled with examples for our instruction that happened 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And those things are still very important. Let's go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 2. Again, Paul, he keeps hitting on this same thing. He says, In the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these things to faithful men who are able to teach others. So he's saying the things you've heard from me, you'll pass those on to other people. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, just very quickly. talks about as we approach the end of the age, there's going to be a lot of difficulties, a lot of misbehavior, a lot of uh, misled ideas. But in verse 10 he says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. So he says, you, you know, continue following the doctrines that you've heard from me. In verse 14, he says, But you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Knowing from whom you have learned them. And this is something that we need to be careful of. And sometimes we'll pull something off the Internet. Wow, this sounds really great. Who's the person promoting? I don't know. I don't know. It sounds really good. You need to know where the ideas are coming from that you hear. I'll give an example of that just a little bit later. We need to know who our teachers are and what they're teaching. And Mr. Armstrong used to say all the time, don't believe me. Get your nose in the Bible and believe the book. Believe the book. Dr. Meredith said the same thing. We're doing the same thing today. But the young individuals that wanted to take over the Worldwide Church of God had a very different line. They didn't say, uh, prove it for yourself. They said, trust us. Trust us. Because Christ is leading us. They didn't say, look it up for yourself. Had a very different approach. 
And there were a number of people who said, well, they're leading, so we probably should follow. So God has put them there, so we should probably follow. But there were some principles that were overlooked. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Isaiah 8 and verse 20, it says, If they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. There is no truth in them. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, if you're not speaking according to the scripture, the scriptural advices, then then don't pay any attention to it. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Timothy. It says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up uh, teachers for themselves, and they will turn their ears away from the truth to be turned unto fables. So Paul has a whole series of admonitions that we need to stay focused on the truth, not be blown away by other ideas. And he doesn't stop there. You know, a couple of other scriptures quickly, Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Ephesians 4 and 14, he says, Don't be children tossed about by every whim of doctrine that comes along. Whoa, jump on that. He said, don't do those things. Don't do those things. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 5.21, he says, prove all things. I'd never heard that scripture read until I came into the church of God. He says, prove all things, examine everything, and hang on to what you can prove to be true. What you can prove to be true. And when I began listening to Mr. Armstrong on the radio, I was not attending anywhere at that time. I was learning certain things. I didn't know where the church was. So I went to the library and spent about eight hours in the library looking up this, looking up that, looking up something else. Finally got the name of a minister, called the minister, can I come to church? He said, what do you do on the Sabbath? I said, I go to the library. He said, walk across the street (laughs) to the YWCA. That's where we meet. (laughs) But these are things we need to do. Uh, Jude mentions in verse 3 that we've got to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Because down through history, people have gone off in this direction, gone off in that direction, and basically jumped the tracks. So these are warnings. And if you have a list of scriptures there, I would encourage you to to read them. Go home, read them, look at them so that you see. I'm not making things up up here. These are uh, scripture after scripture where God says, do these things. If you don't talk about them and point people in the right direction, there will be problems. So if somebody asks you, why do you keep the biblical holy days and the Sabbath? Why do you? I remember somebody asked me that one time. I said, I'll give you some literature. And I said, no, 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 no. (laughs) Why do you keep these things? I don't want to read your literature. I want to find out why you do it. So we need to know. We need to know. You can answer if you take the time to dig into the facts, get the facts for yourself, and get a handle on it. You can answer very confidently and with conviction. The Bible mentions in three places in the Old Testament that we should, every three years, we should appear before the Lord and keep. 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Three different places. Just jot it down. Read it for yourself. Exodus 23. This was at Sinai. Verses 14 to 17. Then after Moses comes down from having to get the Ten Commandments a second time. Exodus 34. Verses 18 to 23. And then before the Israelites went into the Promised Land... Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, three times a year. This is why we do it. This is why we do it. The foundation for what we do in the New Testament is basically in the Old Testament. Then we've got examples in the Bible how Jeroboam changed the feast to the eighth month instead of the seventh month. And he caused Israel to sin, we're told. In First Kings 14, verses 16, you know, he took Israel, the northern ten tribes, off in a wrong direction, and they stayed in going in the wrong direction. They never did come back. I have an interesting scripture in Second Kings 23:11, where there were some horses involved in sun worship out in front of the temple, and they were removed. So that we're getting into sun worship, and this shows up then a little bit later. One of the reasons for keeping the holy days, we find in Exodus, in Ezekiel chapter 20. You know, read the whole chapter, where Ezekiel is talking to the elders of Israel, not just to the Jews, but to the elders of Israel. He said, you're going to go into captivity. This is actually a future prediction. They were already in captivity. But they had rebelled against the laws of God and they had defiled his Sabbaths, plural. The Sabbath, the holy days, they went into captivity. That's a good reason to keep the holy days, not to go into captivity. And these things are going to happen. The lessons are there in the Bible for us to learn from. But here are three places in the Old Testament that talk very clearly that three times a year these pilgrimage pilgrimage feasts were to be kept. Leviticus 23, we always use that. I'm not going to go through it, but it mentions there that these are the feasts of the Lord. Not the Jews, but the feasts of the Lord. There to be holy convocations. That means a commanded assembly. We're commanded to be here. In the college I went to in Pennsylvania, we had a convocation every Wednesday morning. And we had assigned seats. And if we weren't there, they knew we weren't there. And if we missed three chapels in a semester, they dropped our grades by a letter. If you had a B in your class, you got a C. Just because you didn't go to chapel service. We weren't at a commanded assembly, a convocation. I want to give you a couple, a number of scriptures here very quickly on about the Sabbath, because this runs through the Old Testament. Leviticus 23.3 talks about the Sabbath is the seventh day, or the seventh day is the Sabbath, and it's a holy convocation. But the holy days don't start there. You go back to Genesis chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3. It said, At creation, God rested on the seventh day, and he blessed it, and he sanctified it. He made it special. 
We can't sanctify something that God has not sanctified. We can't make something holy that God did not make holy. In Exodus 16, the Israelites were told, and this is a re-education process, bringing them out of Egypt, said you're going to get a double portion of the manna on Friday, but there'll be none on Saturday, none on the Sabbath. So they were learning up front that there's something special about the Sabbath. (laughs) If we want something to eat, we better get enough on Friday and not wait and try and get it on Saturday. It's not going to happen. Exodus 20, part of the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were told, remember the Sabbath day. Mr. Armstrong used to talk all the time about the Sabbath being a test commandment. You've got to remember to do it. You've got to remember to do it. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Again, we can't keep something holy that God never made holy. That's why we do these things. Exodus 31, verses 13 to 17. It says there twice, I believe, that the Sabbath is a sign forever. It's an identification mark forever. I realize I'm preaching to the choir, at least I should be. (laughs) But you know, brethren, if we let these things slide, which you look back at what happened in the Worldwide Church of God, 1995, and about the 10 or 15 years before that, all these things were kind of building up. When things began to change, more than half the church went with the changes. They just floated along. And you think, how could this happen? Because they didn't remember, and they weren't reminded, and they just drifted off course. Exodus 31 talks about the Sabbath as a sign forever. The same thing is mentioned by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 20. It said the Sabbath is a sign And yet people in the Worldwide Church of God were told by some of the leaders, it's not a sign. Well, the book says it was and is. Well, it's not not a sign for us. It might have been for the Jews, but it's not a sign. (laughs) What do you do with four places in the Old Testament say it is a sign? It is a sign. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14 God gave the Israelites through Isaiah instructions to how to keep the Sabbath. You don't do your thing on my holy day. It's not a time for washing the car, watching TV, washing the dishes uh, where you spend several hours washing all the dishes in your cupboard. (laughs) It's not that type of thing. It's a day for drawing closer to God, for praying, for studying, worshiping. That's what it's for. So God's instructions are very clear in the Old Testament of what we should be doing, and these carried on right into the New Testament, as we will see. In terms of the Jews, most of them have remembered that the Sabbath is a sign. They went into captivity as a result of not doing that. And observant Jews today will go to the synagogue and they'll keep the Sabbath. Non-observant Jews will (laughs) do whatever they want to do on the Sabbath. But they understand it. They understand it's a sign. But what about the New Testament? We're living in a different era today. 
mainstream Christianity believes that most of the Old Testament's all been done away with. We don't have to worry about any of those things. In fact, some of the leaders of the Worldwide Church of God at that time says there is no direct command in the New Testament that you have to keep the Sabbath. Okay, there's no direct command, but there are examples there, and we have evidence from history that they did. Very quickly, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, where Jesus kept the Sabbath, it says, as his custom was. It wasn't a matter, well, you know, it's, it's just customary to keep the Sabbath, so I'm going to go keep the Sabbath. No, it was customary because that's what he was taught as a child. That's what the Bible says. That's what he was, that's why he was doing it. In Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verses 14, and then 42 to 44, it shows that the early church was keeping the Sabbath. Paul was there speaking. Gentiles wanted to hear what he had to say. And he basically were told, you come back next Sabbath and we'll talk about it. He didn't say, well, for you guys, <laughs> I'll be here tomorrow on Sunday. And we, well, I'll talk to you. He didn't say that. They came back the next Sabbath because that's what they were accustomed to doing. Acts 17, verse 2. Now, Luke wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. He uses the phrase, as his custom was for Christ keeping the Sabbath. He uses exactly the same phrase for Paul, who kept the Sabbath, as his custom was. Luke was showing that Paul was following in Christ's footsteps. So this, this is what we find when we look into the New Testament. I'd like you to turn to the scripture in Hebrews chapter nine, chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. Now this is a little bit more technical and can get a little bit confusing. But when you understand what Paul is saying there, it's not that confusing. Paul is talking about verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, the term rest is used here in the next eight or ten verses. Most of the words that Paul uses here are the Greek word katapausis, K-A-T-A, P-A-U-S-I-S, it's referring to a physical rest. It's referring to a physical rest. But you get down to verse um, 4 of chapter 4. It says, For he, he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. So it's talking about the Sabbath. And God rested on the Sabbath from all his works. And then down in verse 8, it says, If Joshua had given them rest, again, this word kataposis means a physical rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. Now in verse 9, it says, Therefore there remains, or there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. But the word there is not kataposis. It is sabbatismos. Sabbatismos which means a keeping of the Sabbath or a Sabbath observance. 
So Paul is talking about a physical rest. He gets to this one verse and he says, there remains for God's people a sabbatismos, a keeping of the Sabbath. So you go through the New Testament, you find out Christ kept the Sabbath, the apostles kept the Sabbath, the early church kept the Sabbath, uh, and it was urged by Paul, by his example and by his teaching. This is why we do these things. This is why we do these things. There's no place in the New Testament where the Sabbath was changed. And Mr. Strain gave a sermon a couple weeks ago where he used the example in Acts 15, where we have a very clear change in circumcision. You can go to the Old Testament, you find anybody, any male that was not circumcised, <laughs> kick him out of the camp of Israel. And there were people that read those scriptures and said, oh, what about these people coming into the church today? They should be circumcised. The men should be. In Acts 15, they decided, no, you don't have to be circumcised for uh, spiritual reasons. You don't have to be circumcised for salvation. That's what was said in Acts 15. And that was a difficulty for some people. But yeah, but the Old Testament says, no, there's been a change. There's nothing like that relative to the Sabbath of the Holy Days. It says, now we are changing <laughs> Sunday to, or from the Sabbath to Sunday. There's nothing there like that. So very quickly, why does mainstream Christianity keep Saturday, Sunday and not the Sabbath? Did Jesus change it? Was it changed by the apostles in the early days of the church? No. It was changed by individuals who were carnal human beings that felt that they were Christians. But you read these things. You read these things. The epistle of Barnabas is one of the places that promotes the eighth day instead of the seventh day. This was later determined a spurious book in which he basically says a lot of very anti-Jewish things. He says the Jews were never the chosen people. He said we should be keeping the eighth day instead of the seventh. He says that God gave the commandments in the Old Testament to the Jews to punish them. Now, I heard a longtime minister back in 1995 get up and preach a sermon. He says, God gave those laws in the Old Testament to punish the Israelites. And I thought, where did that come from? It comes from the epistle of Barnabas. It comes from the writings of Justin Martyr. These were the characters that were promoting these ideas. They weren't any more converted than the man in the moon. And yet this is where these ideas come from. You know, the little story I told in the beginning, you need to know who you're hearing these things from. You need to know where the ideas come from. The Epistle of Barnabas, the writings of Justin Martyr, uh, Tertullian. They did not want to be associated with anything Jewish. So the idea was you get rid of the dietary laws, you get rid of the holy days, you get rid of circumcision. All this stuff was Jewish stuff. And we don't want to have anything to do with it. That's where these ideas come from. 
And the church that was apostatizing at that time bought into these ideas. And they were carried forward to where we are today. We will meet uh, Epistle of Barnabas and Justin Martyr just a little bit later. The New Testament reveals that the to Jesus Christ, the apostles, the early church, continued to keep the Sabbath, continued to keep the holy days, continued to follow the dietary laws. Uh, they kept the whole bit. If you want to check on some of the sources that I'm referring to, we've got a booklet, Which Day is the Christian Sabbath, which we go into some of these things. Dr. Samuel Bakioki, who was a Seventh-day Adventist, has a book entitled From Saturday to from uh, a Historical Investigation of the Rise of Sunday Observance. It's entitled uh, From Sabbath to Sunday. I heard Dr. Bakioki speak one time in California. He's very much Italian, very enthusiastic guy. Uh, but he got a doctor's degree from the Pontifical uh, Gregorian Institute in Rome. It was a very heavily Catholic school, but they gave him a doctor's degree. Because one of his conclusions was it was the Catholic Church that changed the Sabbath to Sunday. And they, they were very pleased with that. <laughs> he wasn't knocking any of their ideas. Um, but he goes into how it was changed and what was what would it happen. Um, one other couple of other sources just to mention quickly. Came across an article recently entitled, and this was on the internet, Sabbatismos in Hebrews. Sabbatismos in Hebrews. Paul's use of the word Sabbatismos. And he goes through in that article how things were changed and mentions Justin Martyr, mentions the uh, um, Epistle of Barnabas, and also mentioned the, the Machiokis book. Let's go on next then to um, the Passover. Passover and unleavened bread are mentioned in Leviticus 23. It mentions there... <clears throat> The Passover is to be kept at, uh, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight. The only time there's a twilight period on the 14th is at the beginning of the 14th. The beginning of the 14th. From sunset until dark. And that's when they're to kill the Passover and keep it. If somebody kills it at the end of the Passover, excuse me, the end of the 14th, after sunset, you're into the 15th. So you're not keeping it on the 14th. And yet there's some people that want to do that. And there's been arguments in the church, well, we should be keeping it on the 14th or the 15th. Which one? The Bible says on the 14th. On the 14th at twilight, at the beginning of the 14th. And then to keep the day of some unleavened bread for seven days, the first and the last are holy convocations, commanded assemblies forever. They were to kill a lamb on the 14th. Now the Jews understand this, and they keep the Passover, and observant Jews will keep the days of unleavened bread. But what they don't understand is that lamb pictures the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make because they don't accept the New Testament. 
So therefore, it's a physical thing. It's a physical thing. If we go to the New Testament, what does the New Testament reveal about the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread? It actually gives it a much bigger meaning. It gives it a newer meaning. A couple of scriptures very quickly. In Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 42, we find Jesus keeping the Passover, going up to Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover with his parents. So he was taught to do those things. In Luke 22, verses 14 to 20, he's observing the Passover with his disciples before he's crucified. And he said, I am looking forward to keeping this Passover with you. I'm not going to keep it again until I keep it with you in the coming kingdom of God. So he was looking forward to keeping the Passover with his disciples in the coming kingdom of God. He kept it in his lifetime. The church kept it since then. He's looking forward to keeping it in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Now here's the New Testament dimension to the Passover that the Jews don't have unless they're a... um, What's the word for Jews that believe in Jesus? Uh, Messianic Jews. You know, they will understand this, but as a, a normal, the normal Jews would not. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul says, Jesus Christ is our Passover. Here's the meaning of killing the lamb on the Passover, as revealed in the New Testament very clearly. And he says, let us keep the feast. So here is a New Testament command to keep the feast. In this case, it's the feast of uh, Passover and, and, and unleavened bread. Symbolically, we put leaven out of our homes. It's symbolism of putting sin out of our homes. And we do this at the Passover. The Jews will do this a little bit later, a little bit later as we will get to. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verses 23 through 32. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32. Paul gives instructions for observing the New Testament Passover. Using unleavened bread, examining ourselves, getting rid of the sin that is there. You know, how many times did we get really carried away with getting all the crumbs out of the toaster and all the the leavening out of our kitchen, with some of the sins we drag along from year to year. Remember we had a young lady in one of the churches that I pastored. Her husband was a lawyer. And getting ready for the um, Days of Unleavened Bread. And somebody told her, uh, you know, your husband, if, he reads, if he's reading his law books and he's eating a cookie, those crumbs might get down in those pages. And she said, am I going to have to go through a thousand of his books to make sure there's no crumbs there? They said, no, you know, that is symbolic. We need to look inside and get rid of the things that are in here. And we still need to get rid of the physical leaven, but the really important thing is inside. And Paul gives instructions of how to keep the <clears throat> New Testament Passover. And it's very different from the way the Jews do it. 
Let's move on to Pentecost. Move on to Pentecost. The Greek word means to count 50. Penta is 50. Leviticus 23 talks about counting 50 days or seven weeks, seven Sabbaths. So 50 days from the Sabbath between the holy days and unleavened bread. We're to have another holy day, and it's called Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits. So First Fruits, Pentecost, is a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. And this is mentioned in Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 16. So it's mentioned numerous times. In terms of the Jews, how do they keep Pentecost? It's more or less an agricultural um, festival. They are to bring forth the first fruits of the wheat harvest and offer those as an offering. The Jewish tradition, rabbinical tradition, is that God gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai at that time. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us when very specifically, but that's what they look at. Remember that God gave the Ten Commandments at that time. If we go to the New Testament, what does the New Testament reveal about Pentecost? What does the New Testament reveal? Start in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Jesus told his disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to wait there and be there. And you'll become witnesses to me, again, empowered by the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or it means the ultimate ends of the earth. You know, we have had people, I think Mr. Weston was up in, towards the Arctic Circle. Uh, Mr. Hernandez has been down to the tip of South America. Numbers have been through the tip of South Africa, literally to the ends of the earth. God did not call us into the church so we could just sit at home and discuss the Bible. We've been called into the church of God to preach the gospel of the entire world that doesn't understand the purpose of human life or about the gospel. Acts chapter 2, read the whole chapter. First couple of verses says, When they were in one place and one accord. How would that work today? when we've got churches of God scattered all around cities and we don't talk to each other. In Jerusalem, they were there of one accord in one place when God poured out His Spirit there on that one place. The flames of fire on their heads, they spoke in different languages. It's not jibbering tongues. It's different languages because people understood. I think I mentioned before I had a visit with an individual I think down around Salzburg in Austria, he said, we need to talk. Because God has shown me something that we all really need to understand, and the church will grow if we all start doing this. So I went down to see him. We talked for about a half an hour, and I said, so what's your secret? What's your secret? He said, it's speaking in tongues. It's speaking in tongues. I said, really? Do you do it? Yeah, 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 several times a day. I said, do you understand what you're saying? No. <laughs> I said, why do you do it? 
It makes me feel better. Makes me feel better. But he didn't understand what he was saying. But this comes up periodically. Every several years, somebody sends us a letter or a text or whatever. God has shown me that we really need to be speaking in tongues. No, we don't need to speak in tongues. If God would give us the gift to speak in different languages, it would solve a lot of problems. Because <laughs> we don't have that many people that can actually speak fluently in other languages today. So that might be something to pray about as we get tighter on manpower, that this will happen. It's happened before. Acts 2.37 and 2.38, we're told there that we need to repent, be baptized, and we'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can buy. It's not something we can work up. We've got to repent. We've got to change. We've got to be baptized, have hands laid on us. And God said he will give us the gift of his spirit. Now, here we get into responsibilities. In Acts 5.32, it says God gives his spirit to those who obey him. God gives his spirit to those who obey him, which means you can lose God's spirit if you stop keeping the Sabbath, stop keeping the holy days, drift off in another direction. And I've talked to people that I've worked with that caught up, that got caught up in some of these splits down through the years. You talk with them, you realize they've lost it. They've lost the understanding that we once shared because they've drifted away. See, God gives us a gift, and we can lose that gift if we're not careful. Now, is it necessary to have God's Spirit? What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9? He says, if you don't have God's Spirit, you're none of His. If you don't have the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're none of His. I think we've got people that were part of the church at one time, drifted off, and they're, they're convinced they have God's Spirit. But they're not keeping the Sabbath, they're not keeping the Holy Days. They're on a different track. The words mean what it says. It means what it says. We've got to be led by God's Spirit, Romans 8 and verse 18. That means you follow where God's Spirit is leading His church. You follow where God's Spirit is leading you. In John chapter 16, verse 13, John 16, verse 13, Christ is talking with his disciples. And he said, that spirit will lead you and guide you into all truth. God's spirit will lead you, will guide you into all truth. Why does the church of God have an understanding that many other churches don't have, that believe in Jesus. They believe they're following the book, but they're way out in left field, on a very different track. It's God's Spirit that will lead you and guide you to truth. If you think that you found the truth on your own, that's not the way it works. 
God decides who he wants to call at this point in time. And he will cause things to happen in your life where all of a sudden circumstances will develop. You'll start asking questions or somebody will say something and get your attention. You know, I was in graduate school. I wasn't interested in the church. I was interested in the history of medicine. I was reading some books on the history of medicine. And they refer to uh, an example in the Old Testament, one of the kings, I forget the name right now. But it said he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. He wasn't looking to God. He was looking to the physicians and says he died. But the textbook says, see, even the Israelites used doctors because this, this uh, king looked to, the, looked to the doctors. But they were, they were taking it out of context, and that caught my attention. And I began asking other questions. You, God has ways of getting our attention if he wants to get your attention at this point in time. One other point just to conclude about Pentecost is that keeping the Sabbath and the holy days does not make us Christians. Keeping the Sabbath and the holy days does not make us Christians. We've got to have God's spirit and we've got to be bearing fruit with that spirit. We've got to be bearing fruit with that spirit. You read about that in the first eight or ten verses in John 15. That's why Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. This is what God is looking for. He's looking for in our lives the fruits of God's spirit. So the New Testament dimension about these holy days is extremely important. Let's go to trumpets very quickly, and if you would, turn to Leviticus 23. I think this is a good example of what we've been talking about. We'll go to Leviticus 23 to explain the holy days, but go to Leviticus 23, verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, it says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, what do these two verses tell you about the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets? Well, you blow a trumpet. You have a holy convocation. You don't do any work. And what else do you do? Well, we can go to Numbers, I think chapter 9, chapter 10, where it talks about the uh, Numbers 10, verses 1 to 10. Blow the trumpet. It can be blown for an assembly, movement of people, war, feasts, sacrifices, and offerings. But what's the meaning of trumpets? You know, the Jews, when they keep the Feast of Trumpets, they blow a, a shofar because that's what they're told to do. For them, it's the first day of creation. But how do we know? It's the Jewish New Year. It's something that they set. They make no connection with Jesus Christ. Again, because they're not focused on the New Testament. They're working from an Old Testament perspective. The rabbinical tradition is that the names are entered into the book of life 
on the Feast of Trumpets. Okay? Now, what's the scripture for that? I don't know. It's the first day of ten days of penance. So where is that in the Bible? See, they started trumpets for ten days. They go to atonement. And during that period of penance, they examine themselves like we do during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And they have a little ceremony where they'll get near a river or a little lake or something, and they'll throw some pebbles into the lake because they're throwing away their sins. Now, that's, I don't think there's any biblical instruction for that. Anyways, they will keep it. What does the New Testament reveal? You should be very up on this. We're going to be keeping this in just a couple of weeks. New Testament reveals about trumpets. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the saints. And this is just numerous scriptures through the New Testament. But the Jews don't have these things. They're focused on the Old Testament. Matthew 24, verse 31 says, Jesus Christ will return in the clouds at the sound of a trumpet, and the saints will be resurrected. This is what's going to happen on trumpets. We're not going to be throwing pebbles in a lake, throwing our sins away. Again, I'm not putting this down. Is that, As I mentioned in the very beginning, there are different religions. They all have different ideas, but they're all not true. In spite of the attitude today in society, well, you can't judge. You know, there's truth everywhere. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Acts chapter 17, no, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. says, The resurrection of the saints will occur at the last trumpet. At the last trump. This is what's going to happen. The New Testament is explaining what trumpets is all about. <clears throat> Revelation, several different places. Christ is going to blow a trumpet, or the trumpet will blow, Christ returns, and the saints are resurrected. Acts 17, verse 31 says, Jesus Christ is going to return on a day day to judge the world. He's coming back to judge the world. Matthew 25, 32 talks about he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. So he's going to come back. Not everybody's going to go into the kingdom of God. Not everybody's going to be resurrected at that time. Then we get to the Day of Atonement, which again is very interesting. It's a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. We're told in Leviticus 23 to afflict your souls. And we read in Psalm 35, verse 13, that David humbled himself with fasting and prayer. The word humbled there is the same word for afflict in Leviticus 23. So this is why we do these things. We afflict our souls. We humble ourselves. Leviticus 16 talks about two goats. One is killed as a sin offering. And then one is not killed, but is sent off into the wilderness by a fit man. One is for the Lord, the one that is killed, and the one that's sent off is for Azazel. It's the only place in the Bible where this word is used. The only place in the Bible where this word is used. For the Jews, atonement is Yom Kippur. It's the culmination, the end point of this ten days of penance. 
They fast. They don't drink food or water or eat food or drink water. They're not supposed to, and again, this is the Orthodox. They're not supposed to bathe or wash. Don't use perfume or lotions. You don't wear leather shoes. And there are no marital relations should take place on that day. So it's, it's, it's a very strict day. It's interesting how the view, the Jews view these goats. Came across an article written by a rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, S-A-C-K-S. He was the lead rabbi for all the uh, United Hebrew Congregations in the Commonwealth of England. He held that post for about 20-some years. He's got 18 doctors, honorary doctor's degrees, um, written about 30 books. The title of his article on the Internet is The Scapegoat, Atonement and Purification. The Scapegoat, Atonement and Purification. And this fellow mentions there are a number of theories about what Azazel means. Here's a Jewish scholar. He said there are a number of theories about what it means. He said some believe it's a place. Some believe it's a demon or a Satan. Some believe it's just the goat that was sent away. And then he says... The two goats are us. The two goats are us. One is your nature to want to please God, and the other one is the nature that you want to get rid of. Now, Paul has a very different explanation in Romans chapter 6. He says you're either a slave of righteousness or you are a slave basically of sin, which is the devil. So here's a Jew's explanation. He doesn't commit himself to a specific teaching. He says, these are a bunch of theories that are there. The Jews also make a connection between the two birds. This is in Leviticus 14, the first couple verses. If a man has leprosy or a person has leprosy, um, they're to kill a, a bird, sprinkle the blood on another bird, and then let the bird go free the one that you didn't kill. And they make a connection between these two birds and between the two goats. And yet if you look at this very carefully, the goat was let go, actually not let go, was driven into the wilderness, very desolate area. The bird that wasn't killed is let free. And they just fly away. They're two different words, two different settings, two different settings. There's no reference in uh, Rabbi Sachs's article to uh, <clears throat> the one goat being symbolic of Jesus Christ. And he really doesn't make a connection between the second goat and Satan. Now, the reason for going into this, there's a paper circulating around on the Internet by a person who's promoting the idea that uh, both of those goats refer to Jesus Christ. And this is an area where you need to ask, where do these ideas come from? Where do these ideas come from that both goats are Jesus Christ? They come from 
the epistle of Barnabas. They come from the writings of Justin Martyr because they wanted to get rid of anything that related to anything that was Jewish. And Mr. Nathan has written an article coming out in the magazine about this. We also have a thesis in our library uh, there at the office written by another individual who got a doctor's degree in theology that comes to the conclusion that the Azazel is Satan the devil based on a historical analysis of all these things. Uh, Again, we we need to know where these ideas come from because they don't come from the Bible. The idea that uh, the two goats or Jesus Christ comes from the first, second century, comes from individuals who were anything but converted. They were very anti-Jewish. They didn't want anything to do with the Jews. And yet the Jews understood there was a supernatural individual involved in this. When you go to the New Testament, the New Testament makes it pretty plain. The scripture in Revelation 20 Verses 1 to 3 talks about an angel with a chain is going to come and bind Satan, put him in a pit. He's going to be there for a thousand years. Keep in mind, the second goat was not killed. It was never a sacrifice. It was released into the desert, a desert place. It wasn't pushed over a cliff so that it would die. That's not in the scripture. This is rabbinical tradition. It was led into the wilderness where it didn't want to go and let go by a fit man. Revelation 20 fits exactly with that. And it explains the meaning of the second goat. So again, we need to understand these things. Jesus Christ never carried the sins of the Israelites into the wilderness. He didn't bear those sins into the wilderness. And that sounds reasonable on the surface. But go to, uh, I think it's 2 Peter. Or is it 1 Peter? Let me just check. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. How did Christ bear our sins? Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore our sins by dying for our sins. And by his stripes are you healed. You know, the Bible makes it pretty clear what the meaning of the second goat is. But again, we're looking at New Testament concepts. The Jews don't have these things. They're not interested in New Testament. There's other things we could go into, but we don't have time. We encourage you to read the article that Mr. Nathan has written. If you want to follow up on that thesis, you can contact Dinah Winnell at the library. She's got a copy of it up there. She can tell you how to get it. Very quickly, let's conclude then with the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. We read about that in Leviticus 23. We keep the feast for seven days. The first and the last on the eighth day, our holy convocations will be kept forever. 
know, the Jews will keep the feast, and they view it as remembering the wanderings in the wilderness. The eighth day is a feast of conclusion. It's just the last day of the feast. But without Revelation 20, they don't fully understand what it means. The New Testament, we are told, John chapter 7, verse 2 to 10, Jesus kept the feast. He said, you go up to the feast. I'm not coming now, but I'm coming up later. He went up and he spoke on the last great day. Revelation 5.10 says the saints are going to reign in the coming kingdom of God as kings and priests. Revelation 20 mentions in verses 4 to 6, the saints will be in the first resurrection. They will reign for a thousand years. This is a millennium. You know, Edward Gibbon in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, has a very interesting, but a very interesting paragraph in chapter 15. He said, the, the hope of the millennium, reigning with Christ for a thousand years, he says, was a driving force in the growth of the church of the first several centuries until our learned divines concluded that it was only an allegory. In other words, it's talking about something, but the real meaning is much deeper. And then it was viewed as a doubtful uh, belief and then finally assigned as heresy by the Catholic Church. That's what happened to the gospel of the coming kingdom of God that is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul says there that the holy days and the feast and so on are shadows of things to come. They're shadows of things to come. They picture something that's going to happen in the future. You know, we're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ on trumpets. That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to Satan being bound. You know, it's no fun fighting against the thoughts that he wants to beam into our minds. We've got to, no, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to look at that. But he's right there in front of us. Oh, look at this. When he is bound, he's not around, it's going to be a different world. This is something exciting to look forward to. And then the kingdom of God is going to be set up on this earth, what the tabernacles pictures. It's going to be a very exciting time, the last great day. You know, I've talked with people on new visits, and when you tell them, you know, your grandmother, your grandfather that doesn't didn't learn or didn't understand what you are coming to understand is not burning in hell. <laughs> they're dead. But they're going to come up in a second resurrection, a white throne judgment, and you may have the opportunity to explain to them the truth. And it's going to be a very... I've seen people just break down and cry. You mean they're not in hell or purgatory? No, they're dead. It's going to be exciting to greet them when they come out of the grave. Okay, let's conclude. Why does the living church of God observe the biblical holy days? The Sabbath and the holy days are clearly listed in the Old Testament. And they're commanded for our observance. That's why we do these things. 
We have examples in the New Testament of Jesus Christ and the apostles and the early church observing the biblical holy days. And the New Testament adds dimensions to the meaning of the holy days that are just not there in the Old Testament. Why do we do things differently than the Jews? Because the Jews don't accept the New Testament. They don't accept the New Testament, so they're going to miss the dimensions that are found in the New Testament that explain the meanings of the holy days. Why don't mainstream professing Christians keep the holy days? Because they follow the ideas of the early uh, writers in the 2nd, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century that wanted to get rid of anything that was Jewish. They didn't want to be associated with those things. So as a result, the churches that came out of that movement basically don't keep the holy days, don't keep the Sabbath. They don't understand the plan of God. See, this is why we do what we're doing, not just because everybody else in the room is doing it. We do it because this is clearly outlined in Scripture. We do it because we've got historical evidence to back it up. And it's going to be very exciting to be able to share this with the entire world. So I would encourage you, as we prepare for the fall holy days, we prepare to go off to the feasts, think about the fact that God has opened your mind to understand things that 100,000 people will not understand. One to 100,000. I would encourage you to prove what it is that you believe Go home and study the scriptures that we've talked about here. We mentioned a lot. But read it on your own. You have some questions, ask. But if you take the time to prove these things for yourself, you can be very confident about what you believe. And I hope you'll have a very positive, productive, and enjoyable Holy Day period.